0: This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living Magazine. My guest this week is a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter whose dynamic vocals have made him a favorite on stages all over the country. But as you'll hear today, he originally set out to just work in a recording studio far outside the limelight.
1: I didn't have any aspirations of like making it as a singer or a songwriter. That wasn't really my goal. I just wanted to make records. You know, I was always just so intrigued. Like how do these Michael Jackson records sound this good? And mine coming off of this little cassette recorder don't. Like what's the difference? And then eventually you're like, well, not only does it take like all like the buttons and knobs to do it, but you have to have a good song, and you have to be able to perform it well and play your instrument well. So everything was just all these ingredients to make the chili.
0: Anderson East was born and raised in Athens, Alabama, about 20 minutes from the Tennessee border. Having moved to Nashville right after high school to pursue music, Anderson made a name for himself with a powerful voice that harkens back to soul singers like Otis Redding. Songs like this one, Devil and Me, from his album Delilah in 2015, have a timeless quality that sounds like something out of the 60s. But at the same time, you've never heard anything like it. We'll come tomorrow, in On today's show, Anderson discusses his job as a teenager slinging Alabama barbecue, how the title track from his latest record, Maybe We Never Die, is influenced by his grandmother's battle with Alzheimer's, and much more this week on Biscuits and Jam. Well, Anderson East, welcome to Biscuits and Jam.
1: Well, glad to be here, Sid. Thanks for having me.
0: It's not very often that we get an Alabama native on this show, uh, which is something that we need to correct. <laughs> but you grew up in Athens, Alabama, which is about 90 miles north of Birmingham, where I am right now. Tell me some of your favorite things about Athens. Man, there's a
1: lot. I think, uh, number one, Dub's Burgers is probably my uh, one of my favorite restaurants in the world. And, uh, <laughs> but man, it was a, it was a really great place to grow up. Right now, that whole area of North Alabama is just exploding. But when I was growing up, it was still a very small and sleepy town. And, you know, looking back on it now, I take it definitely as a blessing. So it was, it was a great, great way to come up.
0: Tell me about that burger place. Is that still there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's called Dub's Burgers. It's one of those kind of joints where like once the burger comes from the grill to your table, the paper is already transparent.
0: (laughs) I've got to make a detour and check that out. That's great. You certainly should. Well, Anderson, tell me a little bit about the house and the neighborhood that you grew up in. Well, we lived in a
1: subdivision growing up that was just outside of town and backed up to Isom's Peach Orchard. And so I can't imagine how many hundreds of dollars we used to ruin by riding four-wheelers through their pumpkin patches and all that stuff. But then my folks moved out a little west of town, closer toward Florence area and had a nice little farm out there. So yeah, it was just good, simple country living. Everybody knew each other. Everybody was in each other's business everybody was taking care of each other. And my entire family's still there. Everybody lives no more than two Mm -hmm. miles from each other and I'm, I'm the only one that, that's ever left.
0: So, you know, we like to talk about food on this podcast. Who was the cook in your family?
1: Really everyone. Both of my grandmothers um, on both sides, they're devastating cooks. My grandmother on my mother's side, she, you know, still to this day, every Sunday is full family dinner. Everybody's over just real Southern cooking. And my stepmother's amazing. My mom's amazing. And. My stepmom, she's originally from Korea, but she calls herself a Korean redneck. And (laughs) she'll make roast and fried chicken paired with an egg roll. And it's just the best. It's so good.
0: What were some of your favorite things growing up? Is there a dish that you love to kind of come back for that someone in your family makes? Well,
1: as a kid, I was a super picky eater. I was all about just rolls and ketchup. And then anything you could just fit inside of a roll—that's all I care for. I mean, I still eat the same McDonald's order that I've had since I was five years old. Uh, <laughs> granted, now my palate has expanded. Thankfully, it's odd that you know the name of y'all shows is biscuits and jam because each family member's biscuits was very signature. You know, my biscuits were definitely different than my mom's, but I, I remember those. The most and, and you know god love him for putting up with my picky ass as a child
0: <laughs> it's hard to be picky about biscuits though
1: oh yeah well you'd be foolish if you were
0: <laughs> well you also grew up in uh, barbecue country and that part of the world is kind of known for its white barbecue sauce mm-hmm. big bob gibson's which is kind of down the road from Athens. Are you a barbecue fan? Is that something you spent much time pursuing?
1: Yeah. Speaking of white sauce, my granddad, his white sauce was was the one. I never really cared for it until recently. There's a place in Nashville called Martin's that they do an Alabama white sauce. And it's spectacular, but it's radically different than the kind of white sauce that I grew up with. But as far as barbecue, a lot of my... Best friends, their families, they uh, own Lawler's Barbecue, which is from Athens. And then my friend Franklin's parents own Simmons Barbecue. And I used to work at the Simmons Barbecue when we were in high school. And that was a a scene. You know, I was a little hippie kid running around in Birkenstocks with barbecue blood all over me. (laughs) It was a nightmare, man. But Yeah. All the loaded baked potatoes you could eat, though. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, were you making the sandwiches or were you manning a pit of some kind or, or what?
1: We would cook the barbecue there and then they had a wholesale business that they would cook the barbecue, package it, and then it would get distributed to a lot of the restaurants in the area. But it also had uh, just a drive through window. And so, you know, we'd be in there smoking cigarettes, <laughs> throwing <laughs> barbecue sandwiches out the window. I'm sure they, now that we've gone, it's far more respectable establishment.
0: <laughs> They've cleaned things up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, got rid of the riffraff. So, Anderson, I understand that you grew up uh, spending a lot of time at church. And uh, your grandfather was a uh, Baptist preacher. Is that right? Yes, sir. I- I'm wondering if you can describe the church you went to and what it might have looked like on a typical Sunday.
1: Church was right across from our house, literally like our neighborhood. You could throw a rock and, and hit it. I have my mother's piano right here. that she She was the piano player in church, and I actually have that piano here in the studio. I would say it was probably very traditional looking back on it. It's taken me a long time to come full circle around to giving it the respect that it was due. Like, you know, everybody goes through their rebellious kind of adolescent phases. And you definitely stayed quiet during the service and or you were going to get it <laughs> at lunchtime. But yeah, it was all my family, my grandmother and mom, Like they would do the Wednesday night potluck and they'd be in there cooking for, you know, hundred people, two hundred people every week, and uh, you know it was a great way to grow up.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about your grandfather. What what was your relationship like with him?
1: It was very close. He was kind of the epitome of you know strong Southern man. He's like nine hundred feet tall, and just Jesus and fishing was like his world. That was all. So we were we were in the boat <laughs> from before the sun came up until it got too hot, but very, very wise man. He was in the air force and we look identical. Like if you look at pictures of him, you know, when we were similar ages, it's like, Oh God, genetics is a real thing. So he's (laughs) handsome as can be. I'll tell you that still full head of hair, (laughs) but yeah, he was a great, Uh, definitely a great role model. And he raised three pretty amazing women. uh, one of them being my mom and, and then us grandkids. He was always the one to look up to within everybody's faults that they have. But he's he's led a really tremendous life.
0: You know, you were talking about the music of the church and your mom's piano right there. Were there certain hymns or songs that have stayed with you?
1: Yeah. In the Garden was always... A big favorite. I remember singing that with my sisters back in the day. And like, it's very powerful and it made a big impact. I mean, probably more so than I even care to admit. But to be trying to move a congregation into, you know, this kind of bigger spiritual moment, music has a lot to to do with that. And that, you know, transcends that emotional feeling, even into, you know, like a concert setting nowadays that I can relate to.
0: So, did it impact you a lot as a performer? Were some of your uh, first times on stage um, as a musician on a church stage?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I sang in you know the kids' choir from the time they would let me in, and then you know later on in kind of like the praise band, and you're just like trying to get through G, C, and D chords on a guitar. And for where we grew up, there was no kind of like live music. You just couldn't go see anything like that. So or have any opportunity to do that. So that was at, at least every like Wednesday night you could at least go play with like some of the other kids that were fumbling around on instruments. You have, you know, a lot of people being like, Oh yeah, I was playing down at such and such with so and so when I was sixteen and it's like, oh that's cool. You know, we I was down at the Baptist church playing with Jim Bob. <laughs> <laughs> His base he stole from his <laughs> granddad.
0: <laughs> well, you clearly picked up a few things.
1: Probably <laughs> probably more than I should have.
0: <laughs> I'll be back with more from Anderson East after the break. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken. A new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients... This slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bees Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and I'm talking with Alabama native and Grammy nominee Anderson East. Anderson, your voice is so powerful and so distinctive and expressive, and it has so much range. When did you start to have a real awakening as a vocalist? And I'm wondering who were some of the people that you were listening to that were influencing you.
1: I remember two instances, and I remember one of them was in church, and I was real young. I had like had a solo, and like when I was very young. I was probably like maybe eight or so, and I had a solo in one of these performances at church. And I just remember it felt good. I liked the way it felt singing, especially singing by myself. Even to this day, like doing any kind of like background harmonies and things like that. Count me out. I'm not your guy. But the solo thing was really nice. And then I remember, you know, I was probably we were probably like 14 or so, and we had, you know, me and uh, some buddies started our middle school band. And I was just the guitar player. I wasn't the singer or anything. And my friend Will, who was the, the singer at the time, that's when like puberty hit. So every Wednesday we would play down at the Methodist Church. They were a competing church in town, but they had like a house thing. And it was. The closest thing kids could do that was like the equivalent of going to see a show or something like that. We'd play whatever was on the radio kind of thing or any kind of tabs you could find in like the back of, you know, Guitar World magazine that we could all learn. But yeah, he started going through puberty. And so he didn't you know, get the crack in his voice when he was singing. And Finally, we're <laughs> like, hey, man, everybody's laughing at us. So we, we got to quit this. So I stepped up. And that was kind of like the instance of where oh I was like, I'm still not a very good guitar player, but it's like I can at least get through these songs.
0: So at what point did you move to Nashville. I mean, this is not a super long trip for you. You It's only, what, a hundred miles up the road? Yeah. But I'm wondering what those first few months were like for you in Nashville and whether you felt really confident about where you were headed or did you have some doubts?
1: Well, I moved as soon as I graduated high school and my parents were like, you got to get an education. You got to go to college okay, well, that's not something I'm really interested in. And I don't really have any interest in having any kind of job. And so I looked around and found Middle Tennessee State down in Murfreesboro because they had a recording engineering program. And I was like, well, if I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go hang out in the studio because that's the only thing I care about. I went up there. I was all by myself. And sure enough, I just lived in recording studios. And I was still very much in my rebellious years and couldn't be bothered to listen to anybody tell me what to do. And a friend of mine, he'd started an actual commercial studio and built out the rooms and the floating floors. I was like, this is a legit thing. And so he just let me start hanging around. And then eventually I moved up to Nashville about a year and a half into that. I was like, you know, Murfreesboro is great and all, but I want to be up there where they're doing the real thing. And uh, so I would do the commute, but I don't think there was ever any moment of doubt in the decision to come up here. There's definitely doubts on other things on various days. (laughs) I heard very early on this Paul Simon quote where he's like something to the effect of like recording studio is the perfect place because it's the only only place that you can fix anything. And I was like, I think that's where I want to be, too.
0: Well, what a great experience for you and what a great foundation for so much of what you're doing now. Yeah.
1: I mean, everything's always kind of led into itself. I didn't have any aspirations of like making it as a singer or a songwriter. That wasn't really my goal. It was just that was just a byproduct of I just wanted to make records, you know. As I was always just so intrigued with like, how do these Michael Jackson records sound this good, and mine coming off of this little cassette recorder don't? Like, what's the difference? So that's been my entire life's goal: is like, how do you keep chasing to make these records sound like that? And then eventually, you're like, well, not only does it take like all like the buttons and knobs to do it, but you have to have a good song, and you have to be able to perform it well and play your instrument well. So like, everything was just all these ingredients to make the chili essentially. And then it just so happens that I just randomly get seen playing a show one night and then life just takes another turn. You know, it's that self-fulfilling thing where you just keep finding interests in different aspects that ultimately feed back to the same source.
0: Yeah. Well, you seem like you've had some great partners and great mentors along the way. I know that you toured with Chris Stapleton quite a bit, and uh, you've written songs together. What are some things that you picked up from him as an artist?
1: I don't know how somebody gets blessed with all those gifts. Like writing a song with him, you just watch it happen, and you're like, that was the most effortless thing, you know, and he'd had quite a bit of success before he became the Chris Stapleton that everyone knows him now, but just as a writer, I don't, I don't think it gets talked about. Maybe it does get talked about enough and I don't pay enough attention, but you know, just his songwriting is really, really incredible. And then put on top of it that he could sing the phone book and it's just like, golly. But beyond just like the music stuff, just be nice to people. I don't think I've ever seen that man be anything less than a sweetheart. He's been nothing but kind and gracious, me and him and Morgan both have been nothing but supportive. And I met him the, the day they finished doing Traveler and Dave Cobb was like, Hey man, come over here and sequence this record. And I'm sitting there with everybody. I was like, Oh my God, the world is about to have some something serious on their hands.
0: Well, there's a song from your album Encore called, If You Keep Leaving Me, I'll Keep Loving You mm-hmm. that you wrote with him. And it is such a great song, and it kind of reminds me of Otis Redding. <laughs> mm.
1: should hear Chris sing
0: it. <laughs> it's just such a great song. What was your process like working with him on that song?
1: With that one, we wrote with my friend Aaron Raytier as well. I think that was probably the second song we had written that day, and that was a lot of like how I write and a lot of people around town write as well. You just kind of carry around a note of, you know, either some kind of theme or idea or a title, and, and that title, Aaron, he just kind of threw it out, and then Chris just, you know, "If you keep leaving me," okay, I see where we're going now, and it—I mean, maybe it took us 15 minutes.
0: That's amazing. Well, it seems like such a simple song, but I know that there's also nothing simple about it in terms of you know making it all come together.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know what the the relationship between, like, simple and and just easy, you know, when something just falls out, you just got to kind of accept it and go with it. And that was definitely what, what that song was. If you keep leaving me, I'll keep loving you. If you keep hurting me.
0: So Anderson, you have a new album out called Maybe We Never Die. Congratulations on that.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you. It's a beautiful record and it's a brave record and it seems to go in a different direction for you. And I wanted to ask you about the title track, which I've heard you say was partly a reference to your grandmother's uh, battle with Alzheimer's. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: I'd kind of just had the thought of like, what are you at the end of your life if your memory's gone, right? Like, what part of you is this person? And I know a lot of people have seen family members go through that thing and it's the hardest thing of just watching that deterioration of memory. So I, I was thinking one day, you know, your essence has to be more than, than these like electrical impulses that are firing in your brain that somehow is triggering these memories or, you know, and I don't have any kind of definitive answer on what you actually are. And I was just, I just couldn't wrestle the thought down and, I'm I'm a fan of the idea of the soul and things that live on and reincarnation or something like that. I couldn't just accept the fact that this is what this person is now, that makes any kind of sense.
0: Anderson, would you mind singing a little bit of that song?
1: Oh, Lord. I'll try. Let's see here. heavy-ass car crash thought I could take the impact and watch it all and finally walk away put it all on replay wouldn't try and save face and now I'd die for one last chance Have one more day and maybe we never die. Heaven has no goodbye. You and I, you and I live forever. You and I live forever. So on and so forth.
0: Well, it's just a beautiful song, and I can see why you would want to open the record with it.
1: Yeah, you know, all while making the record, I was like, this is going to be a great closing song. <laughs> right. I was just dead set, like, that was the final song for the record. And then once it came time to put it all in order, and even throughout, you know, making the record, I was like, this is the the kind of cornerstone that everything else kind of looks back to. And so it just felt natural that that should, should be the lead off.
0: Well, Anderson, I just have one more question. What does it mean to you to be Southern? Hmm.
1: That's a very interesting question. That's a very, I don't know. That's a very big question. I think you have to live with inside some of you know the Southern stereotypes. And there's a lot that I've super into i am very into hospitality i want to make sure everybody's having a good time around me neighborly and like being friendly and kind and those are kind of the southern tropes that i'm really into i like you know the yes sir no ma'ams those kind of things the pleasantries i think are probably very important to me at least
0: Yeah. Some good rules to live by. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Well, Anderson East, thank you so much for being on biscuits and jam. I
1: said, thank you so much for having me. I had a lovely time talking to him.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Anderson East. His latest album, Maybe We Never Die is available wherever you get music and you can visit andersoneast.com for tour dates, social media, and more. Join me for our next episode with up-and-coming country star Raina Roberts. I just want to have a song that can resonate with people. I want to create a song that can outlive me. And so that is really my goal. That's really what I want. I want to have a song that I'm so in love with. I can hear myself singing it 20 years from now. And even when I'm gone, it's a song that people will remember and a song that they love. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com and subscribe to our print publication by searching for Southern Living at www.magazine.store. Biscuits and Jam was produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Danielle Roth, Andy Bosnak, Matt Sav, and Rachel King at Pod People. We'll see you back here next week for more biscuits and jam.